Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that broods over the world of cars and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have news stories including will electric vehicles change our whole attitude to power. We have an extended interview with Stephen Lester from Nissan Australia about car image and future directions. And we hear from Dean Oliver and his early motoring experiences including buying a performance car and getting a stern lecture from his bank manager. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Search for Overdrive, Cars, Transport and Culture. Or our Facebook site is Overdrive City. So let's start the program with the news. In some European countries, Nissan's electric leaf can be used as a portable battery source to run your house or perhaps even out on the farm. In Australia, this is not yet approved, but Nissan are working on it. Could this lead to a significant refocusing of where the car will fit into our general lifestyle? We asked Stephen Lester, the general manager of Nissan Australia. I think without question, you bring up a really good point in how that paradigm is shifting in terms of the individual's relationship to power and mobility as a, as a consequence of that. And whether it's metro or rural, there are a wide variety of applications in, in which that V2G or vehicle-to-grid technology can be used and leveraged to the benefit of the consumer. In January 2020, Holden sales were down 37% compared to last year. In the middle of February, they announced that they would be retiring the brand. The sales for the whole of February are down 64%. Two years ago at this time, Holden were the eighth best-selling manufacturer. This year, in February, they were 15th and were even outsold by Mercedes-Benz, Subaru, BMW, Isuzu, Ute and Suzuki, as well as the usual top performers. For every one Holden sold, Toyota sold 13 vehicles. The once mighty Commodore nameplate sold less than a quarter of the numbers it sold a year ago. How is the value of old Holdens going? At a recent Shannon's auction, a 1954 FJ Special sedan with a teardrop caravan sold for $51,000, more than 27% over the estimated value. A 1972 Holden HQ Monaro Coupe sold for $67,000, 40% better than expected. And from the late 70s, an HZ Premier sold for $55,000, 45% better than they thought it would get. Mind you, the highest sale was for a Victorian Heritage black and white number plate, number 26, which sold for $1.11 million. I just don't get that at all. The traditional hybrid, like the Prius, has a petrol engine that always drives the wheels but is helped by an electric motor. The petrol engine can also put charge into the batteries. You can't plug it into the power system. A plug-in hybrid is driven by an electric motor straight to the wheels. 
The batteries are charged by the petrol engine at the time, so no range anxiety. Or you can plug it into the electric power system, which is the most cost-effective way. The batteries aren't big. The Mitsubishi plug-in in their large SUV, the Outlander PHEV, will get you about 25 kilometres, but that does cover many city trips in this quiet, efficient electric mode. We will talk more about the Mitsubishi FEV soon. The Feedspot website just listed its top 10 transport podcasts, and our Overdrive program came in at number 7, amid mostly very serious technical programs from overseas. Overdrive is a weekly radio program featuring motoring and transport news from Australia and around the world, road tests, feature interviews and quirky stories. The surprising fact is that the podcast is not always deadly serious, at times using humour and satire to make a point. But above all, it takes an inquiring approach that is based around the question, what does it look like when it's working, be it a car or another transport system? You can hear the program on iTunes or Spotify, search for Overdrive, Cars, Transport and Culture, or by going to the website drivenmedia.com.au. Overdrive's artist-in-residence, Dean Oliver, also comes from a family that has had its passion for Holden cars. Dean joins me on the line now. Dean, your family did have some Holdens. How far back did it go? Yeah, thanks, David. Yes, our, our family had a fairly small collection of uh, Holdens, but nevertheless a good one. My father, m- my parents originally came through from a 1950s Austin A40 Tourer that my father used to deliver newspapers in. And then the big move was a 1962 E.K. Holden Special. It was a station wagon, and it had the two-speed hydromatic gearbox, which was brand new. And Dad used it to deliver newspapers around uh, Shell Harbour and, and that area of the South Coast. Now, that's the reflection of the times, because when the first Holden came in, the biggest selling car was the A40 Austin Devon. Well, yes, he certainly fitted that stereotype really well. But the old English Austin was just no match for the rough potholes of the roads of country New South Wales. How did your father feel with that change? Because it was going to a bigger car, a more powerful car and a more rugged car. Was he proud of that? Oh, it was the pride of the family, David. There were photographs of the family standing beside it, beaming, smiling. And it was a spectacular looking thing compared to the old Austin. The Holden was bright blue and it had a stripe down the side. And the EK had those wonderful tail fins on the tail lights, which looked very American. It was that era of the excess of the Cadillac reflecting the space race, really, wasn't it? It was trying to look like it was a rocket. Yes, but NASA rockets probably didn't overheat uh, with quite quite the same problems as, uh, as the Holden did, especially on our trips up to Sydney. Mum always packed a thermos and some sandwiches because the Holden would it'd get pretty warm going up Mount Oosley from Wollongong and Dad always had a race with himself to see if he could get over in third gear without it changing back down to second about 50% of the time. That's another whole story of the hills in every capital city under which people tested their car or even in your case as you're saying some of the more rural roads of If you can get up the hill, then you know you're doing well. Did they continue with Holdens? 
Yes, and after almost 10 years, the old EK gave way to a 1972 HQ Kingswood, and it was a 253 V8. And I think my poor old dad might have got done over by the salesman um, at the Holden dealership because I... Uh, it was pretty out of character for him to go for a you know a, a smooth V8, and especially the the HQ was uh, the colour was Chateau Mauve, which was uh, a metallic purple colour. C253 was the six cylinder pistons, but only eight of them, I believe. That's right. Yeah, four point two liters. It had a bit more torque and a bit more power than the uh, the 202 uh, six cylinder. And, and it went well with the Trimatic three-speed gearbox, and it was, it was a lovely, smooth touring car. Very soft, squashy suspension, and I think understeer was the, was the name of the game when it came to handling. But it looked good, it sounded good, it started rusting from the day we bought it, and... Uh... <laughs> you then continued, your first car, I think, was a Tirana, but... It came with an unsolicited recommendation for financial prudence. Well, I'd got my first job and uh, and I was pretty keen on Holden's and uh, the Holden dealer team and the Bathurst uh, races and all that sort of thing. And so naturally, I had a job, I was getting a regular income, and so it had to be a Tirana. There's no way I could have got an XU1 because insurance was just totally impossible for a young bloke in his early 20s. So, my new car was a GTR Tirana, a 973 LJ model, and uh, it was wonderful. And I bought it with a bank loan, and I got a stern lecture from the uh, from the bank manager about responsible financial management. And in hindsight, I think I borrowed about $2,000. The car was about 3400 or something new, and I, I borrowed $2,000, which in dollars of the day was an enormous amount of money. So... The bank manager was, I think, pretty horrified. <laughs> uh, of course, you should have kept it. Should have done. I traded it in a few years later, got about, I don't know, $1,600, $1,700 for it. And then I saw one at auction a couple of, a year or two ago in pretty good condition. It was an LJ GTR Tirana for about $30,000. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Yes, but you would have had to keep it for a long time to get that. It, too, had also started to rust. We look at these cars through sort of rose-coloured rear-vision mirrors. We were passionate. We loved the Ford versus Holden thing. We were The Japanese cars were sort of on their way in, and we, we were very suspicious of these European cars, Alphas and Fiat's and things like that. But in actual fact, the Holdens, they weren't really all that well made. They were low technology. Uh, GMH was a slow-to-react conservative company. But if they hadn't have kept winning, winning those Bathurst races, well, I don't know what would have happened. You have some photos of it on a dirt road doing a little bit of oversteer. Well, I don't know what I was thinking at the time, David, but I lent my Tirana GTR to you to drive and on a dirt road just so I could get some photographs of it. Well, they were good photographs, I thought, at the time. I think we might have put them on, um, on your website. I note at one stage there I was probably in the groove because I had a Terry Towling hat on. <laughs> well, even rally drivers in those days just wore Terry Towling hats. It just kept the dust out of your hair, I think, that's all. You said you followed the Holden dealer team. Did you have a certain balanced view or were you somewhat one-eyed? I would have thought I was pretty balanced, but in hindsight I can think it was really kind of a, a strange fanaticism. 
I had a, um, a scrapbook and I used to diligently cut out all of the, uh, the photographs that I could find of winning Holdens and Bathurst and racing and rallying and those were the days of the Holden dealer team with Colin Bond and Peter Brock and uh, Harry Firth and so each week I'd, uh, I'd cut the photographs out and stick them in my scrapbook and on the odd occasion when I got a good photograph but unfortunately the Holden might have come second I painted out the, uh, the Ford in front of the, the Holden, painted out with black paint my scrapbook looked a bit like a redacted security document with big black patches all over it. You could work for the administration and the American political system. <laughs> yes, I might have seen a few um, uh, spy movies in my time. You threw those scrapbooks out, didn't you? Was that cathartic? At the time it probably was, but now I, I really, really regret doing that. I mean, I, I, you know, my memories of those days are, are really pretty good, and I'd like to go back and see them again, I think, those, those photographs and how, I, um, how I, I, I treated them. It was good fun. And cathartic, yes, well, cars represent important milestones in, uh, in a young bloke's life. It wasn't a Tirana, but you may have noticed that picture I put on the Overdrive City Facebook site of the yellow Monaro with the lady getting out of it in a jumpsuit, a skin-hugging oh, yes. jumpsuit. I did notice that, and uh, I think I might have had a, a copy of that advertisement pinned up in my bedroom somewhere. Yes, yeah. Mm. Loosely related to motoring. <laughs> you could look at it in, in, in two ways. I think you could have looked at that ad, David, yes, yeah. Yes, uh, well, uh, I think it had, what was it, a double entendre with one meaning. <laughs> That's right. Yes, yes. Did you uh, continue a passion? Have, have you continued a passion for Holden? No. No, the cars after then became a succession of Datsun 1600s, Honda Accords, Subaru Forester, and, of course, a trusty Volkswagen Combi van as I get older. You rallied the 1600. Yes, yes, and and you of course were my trusty navigator, and we had uh, we had a great time. It was cheap. It was the cars were rough and tough, and it was great fun. Dean, you have an element of great culture about you. I remember sitting in the passenger seat to navigate and looking up to the note, well, a little piece of paper you'd cut out of a program and stuck on the roll bar. The program, I believe, was. A ballet presentation. Oh, it was a concert. It was a concert or a ballet. And I think it was a notice in the program said, please remain seated during the performance. The only time I wanted to get out was for all the wrong reasons and nothing to do with your driving, but to do with my inability to keep my head down reading while the car <laughs> was bouncing all around me. Oh, uh, David, all the best navigators suffered from car sickness. It was a lovely time. I can't see a picture of an old Tirana, particularly a Holden dealer team, often on the circuit but also in rallying, that doesn't evoke within me a mystical significance. Yes, yeah, certainly. Hindsight's always terrific and you can look back and think how wonderful the times were, and they certainly were. It was a simpler time. Our cars were simpler. Our lives were simpler. Dirt roads were closer to the city. <laughs> I mean, there's not a dirt road within an hour's drive of, um, of the centre of our cities now. It's just not fun. Dean, I've uh, appreciated over the many years your tolerance for my idiosyncrasies and your great kindness in allowing me to drive 
your Tirana GTR on a dirt road. I thank you for that, and I thank you for your patience and ongoing trust. (laughs) David, it's a pleasure. Let's get together again soon and cry on each other's shoulder. And that's Dean Oliver, the artist in residence for the Overdrive program, former Holden GTR Tirana owner and driver, and one who has kept his eye on things of broad culture and base Holdens. You're listening to Overdrive. Well, 2019 was a tough year for car sales in Australia, and 2020 has some dark clouds. No, maybe even not just on the horizon, but firmly overhead. But we have to get on and be adaptable. We're very uh, pleased to have Stephen Lester, the Managing Director of Nissan Australia, on the line to talk on a few subjects. Stephen, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. In terms of the N-Trek Warrior, that's a very testosterone-type ute. How important is it to have that sort of hero car in the ute range? Well, look, I think when you look at the market and where utes are growing in the segments, it's quite clear that there's a strong appetite for this type of hero at the top of the uh, ute range across all brands. And, And in particular, that was a space where Whilst our Entrec had been doing well and, and STX, uh, which is a strong seller for us, continues to perform, we felt that a place with a Warrior name badge would be uh, a great place for uh, Navara to continue to see improved sales results. You have got the N-Track Warrior to have some upgrades that you build into it to start with, but they're locally done and have been locally developed? That was one of the key requirements for us was to um, take what was already a very good ute and make it even uh, better and more suitable towards what we believe off-road enthusiasts would like to see in a, uh, in a Navara. So we uh, partnered with Premcar. Um, we underwent a, a very long process with them to take a look at every aspect, uh, the drivability of the vehicle, both on and off-road, and the capability required to suit the Warrior nameplate. And, uh, and that's what we came up with. See, a lot of the genuine off-roaders have been doing a lot of aftermarket. It's, it's hard to make a profit in selling a car, and people would argue to get the very best deal. Does it hurt when they go out and then buy a whole pile of aftermarket stuff? Well, we'd like to think that we can offer a package that fully meets the needs of, of those consumers. And I think what you've seen over the last few years is the do-it-yourselfer is still part of that key off-road segment. But there's also a, an even larger market that are interested in the vehicle as, as a lifestyle vehicle and, and are getting into off-roading and are not maybe as uh, keen to go up and shop every single part individually. And they welcome five-year-backed warranty fully engineered and tested, done by the manufacturer, and that increases their level of confidence both on and off-road. The LEAF in Europe is registered as a genuine contributor to the power grid, I believe. That is, that not only can you charge your LEAF, but you can use your LEAF as a battery pack to run your house or other things. Will that happen in Australia? Are you progressing to get that level of approval? Yes, we are absolutely progressing uh, down that path. We have a number of trials that are already underway and have been underway for some time. And I think that we will see this come to market in the very near future. See, I think that changes the role of the car in many ways, doesn't it? It doesn't just become transport. It becomes part of the interaction with the, the way we've democratised our power. 
by using solar powers and so on, but also perhaps by running your house in the peak time off your car battery. The other one is in the rural areas that a battery-powered vehicle is seen as you know range anxiety, yet if a farmer can take it out and run an electric chainsaw off it, that would be significantly different. Is there, do you think, a significant refocusing of where the car will fit into our general lifestyle? I think without question, you bring up a really good point in how that paradigm is shifting in terms of the individual's relationship to power and mobility as a, as a consequence of that. And whether it's metro or rural, there are a wide variety of applications in, in which that V2G or vehicle-to-grid technology can be used and leveraged to the benefit of the consumer. And as we see that, um, we'll become much more free because there are no private individuals really producing petrol on their own today. And they're certainly not often, or at least outside of the odd emergency, willing to reuse the petrol that they've already put into their vehicle, other than for driving, of course. So um, we now have that mobile grid application that can then be used for, as you've already pointed out, a variety of different circumstances. I believe some of the emergency services in Japan will send out a fire engine and a couple of Leafs to be a power pack. Absolutely. So we're already seeing that being leveraged in Yokohama and in Japan, and and uh, the uh, the limitation at this point is only uh, bound by our imaginations uh, to a certain degree um, as far as applications go. So it's been a tough year last year, and looking similar this year. Do you think you will see these sorts of major shifts, and will Nissan be positioning itself into that, as it were, different future? I certainly think that the LEAF offers us the, the path to be uh, able to address that different future. And, and if indications from the company globally uh, are and, and continue to be on plan, we'll see other concepts down the road that allow us to bring that technology to Australian consumers in, in even more meaningful ways and through a variety of more choice of concepts. We've been talking about for a little while now that in our midterm plan we'll see 30 percent of our overall portfolio electrified towards the end of 2022 and that we believe will help us deliver different powertrains to Australian consumers and be prepared for the future which we have no doubt will be electrified. See there's often think globally act locally it's the act locally that's really going to perhaps drive electric vehicles, the London ultra-low emission zone, where you won't be able to drive your car into the CBD or other areas unless it is a very low local producing pollution. Is that the sort of things that you think will change our attitudes, well, or evolve our attitudes more quickly than perhaps a more generic belief in, in global warming? Yeah, I think that we have to accept at some point that there is going to be and there is a necessity for change in how we've motored for the last 100 years and and how we will plan to motor for the next 100 years. And that's just a natural evolution of, of the process. There is no doubt that governments around the world are already taking measures. Those measures are wide and varied. And at the moment, we don't have a very clear picture on what the government's view is on some of those items. And that is the area that I think we still need to see come to fruition in order to help consumers have the confidence to adopt that new change as we go forward. 
I think the exciting aspect of this is that that change, though, is one that keeps individual mobility and individual motoring at the, at the forefront and the center of what I think consumers, especially in Australia, are still interested in. Yet there is a movement for car companies to embrace not just that, that I am one person in one vehicle, but perhaps car sharing and other issues, which could in fact lead to a change in design of cars a little. The, the car companies have to accept that individual mobility is part of it, but not the total part of it? I think with, without question, one of the most exciting um, elements from a... Uh, designers uh, standpoint and and uh, these aren't my words but the words of the actual designers are that they get a, a, a completely new landscape to now design with because the traditional elements or encumberments of a of an internal combustion engine um, designed the way it is on the platform are now being completely changed so their canvas if you will is giving them brand new inspirations and to your point about whether it's car sharing or multiple vehicle multiple people in vehicles etc and so forth all of the other changes in the shared economy that could come they now have something to design with that's not just based on the traditional seating arrangement or internal design of a of a of a vehicle so and that that's i think part of the exciting part about what vehicles are going to look like in the future we don't know exactly what it'll be but you've used the word as we evolve that's very important isn't it not to there's almost a sectarian divide in the australian debate about climate change and other things yet it is an evolution is that a critical part of a large company like yours being adaptable Absolutely. I think without question, we have to remember that a, a, a light switch is not going to be flicked. And all of a sudden, all of these changes that have been discussed will have taken shape or decisions being made and everybody will be forced into one different future. Um, it will take time for all brands, all manufacturers to evolve, including ourselves. And uh, there will be a lot of change. And sometimes, unfortunately, that change will feel slow. But at other times, um, it may seem or feel very rapid and, uh, and that change will be, uh, be required over time. Stephen, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that was Stephen Lester, the Managing Director of Nissan Australia, where the market has been tough, but he proves that you have to be adaptable, aware and prepared to take on new directions. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Dean Oliver, Stephen Lester and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au All previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or you can go to our Facebook site, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <music>